0: So it is World Tuberculosis Day, and what the reason it's today is because it's the anniversary of when um, Edward Coe, uh the discoverer of the bacillus that caused TB, actually made the announcement. And so um, after the show, you can go to the Evidence-Based Radio Facebook page uh, where I do post throughout the week as well. And you'll be able to see there, um, they should go up around 7, uh, a couple of infographics from the CDC. And so there's a couple of them because there's one about active Um, TB and then there's also another one about latent TB and so it turns out that a lot of people have TB but they don't have enough of it in their system that it actually presents as TB but that can change and so those people are also at risk. So definitely go there uh, to the Facebook page Evidence Based Radio and check out those infographics. I love infographics. They're pretty much my favorite way of uh, visualizing data or showing data. Um, Graphs are pretty awesome too, but I just love a really well done infographic. Um, And these ones are pretty good. So anyways, let us actually get into tonight's stories. So I wanted to lead off with uh, this short little a snippet of a story about UFOs, just because I thought that it's a really great reminder that most UFOs have a pretty mundane explanation. So it turns out that in Chattensden, um, uh, England, some people had been seeing strange moving lights. And of course, they thought this might be a UFO. And that's not unreasonable to think, you know, moving lights, lights in the sky. That's what a lot of people say UFOs are. So I'm not saying that that wasn't a vaguely reasonable um, suggestion. However, of course, generally not true. Um, Or rather, almost certainly not true. And um, in addition to that, the local paper, the Derby Telegraph, actually notes that there was an uptick in people searching for the word UFO on their website. Well, again, as I mentioned before, it turned out that there was a very simple explanation. A traveling circus had arrived in Derby and was using spotlights to light up the night sky. Now, if you've ever been on uh, 91 at Night Uh, coming back towards the Northampton area and um, getting off or passing the Northampton airport, you can see spotlights there sometimes. And, you know, if you didn't know that they were spotlights from the airport, they can look pretty creepy. I've seen them a couple of times and been like, what on earth? Oh, oh, it's the airport. Um, And so it turns out that Unfortunately, this is another case where it's just something extremely mundane, not at all anything uh, to worry about. Now, again, I have noted that I'm not opposed to the idea of alien life. And in fact, I think it's almost certain that there is life somewhere else in the universe. But I'm also fairly certain that it is not Visiting the Earth. And so that is something that I'm, I'm pretty sure about. And um, it turns out that actually when uh, neuroscientists and psychologists have looked at the um, subject of eyewitness accounts, since that's what most UFO sightings are, they're simply someone saying, I saw something. It turns out that eyewitness accounts—they're not what they were once cracked up to be. They can be riddled with mistakes. They're influenced by the present, and otherwise, they're kind of useless. Um, it turns out that they're very easily changed. Um, and I've talked about the fact that memories can be very malleable before, and so in the end a lot of UFO stories come down to the refrain of, I know what I saw. Well, unfortunately, neuroscientists are here to tell you that no, you don't. Um, Unfortunately, you don't know what you saw. Humans are pattern-seeking animals, and we also tend to not think about how our view of the world, especially our view of the world through our eyes, is mediated So much by our brain. Our brain is doing so many things to take the information that's coming into our eyes and make it into what we see. Um, It's not like a camera where the eye is just seeing the light coming in and it's interpreting that. Perfectly, And it's just a one-on-one kind of thing. There's all sorts of problems with blinking. And when you move your eyes, being able to see a smooth swath as you move your eyes is actually quite an impressive feat that the uh, brain has to handle. And of course, when you see things like optical illusions and other forms of trickery, it's easy to see just how easy it is to fool your brain. And so yes, you can see something weird in the sky. But chances are that is not actually a UFO. It's either something mundane, or it's just a trick of the light, or a trick of your mind. Um, And again, it's unfortunate because I think Aliens would be cool. Though I did want to finish this up uh, with talking about the uh, sort of possible silver lining to all of this, uh, not having aliens out there. Because, uh, in case you haven't heard, Stephen Hawking, um, who is, of course, a very famous physicist, is also apparently a grumpy old man <laughs> in some respects. Um, And it may be that, you know, he has good reason for this, but he basically has said that if aliens ever did come to Earth, they would basically either be here to destroy us or they would just ignore us and do whatever they wanted on the planet. Um, So take heart. (laughs) They're not here to eat us, at least. (laughs) And speaking of the heart, let's move on now to some stories about Uh, the science of medicine. And this first one is a local story actually. So an interdisciplinary team um, at Worcester Polytechnic Institute, I realize Worcester isn't actually local, but go with me. (laughs) Along with colleagues at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and Arkansas State University in Jonesboro have succeeded in turning plant material into a scaffolding to grow heart tissue. Specifically, the team took spinach leaves, stripped them of plant cells using detergents, and then cultured human heart cells that were actually able to beat. Now, the reason for using the leaves as scaffolds is because one of the really big hurdles for creating new tissue, and especially if we actually want to then scale up and create organs, is the issue of vascularization. Even with our best 3D printers, we cannot currently recreate the intricate network of blood vessels and especially capillaries, which can be tiny, needed to allow blood to reach the whole tissue and deliver much needed nutrients and other essential components of cellular respiration. So, their paper is published in the upcoming May issue of Biomaterials. And it's called Crossing Kingdoms, Using Decellularized Plants as Perfusible Tissue Engineering Scaffolds. <laughs> and so the authors write, Plants and animals exploit fundamentally different approaches to transporting f- transporting fluids, chemicals, and macromolecules, yet there are surprising similarities in their vascular network structures the development of decellularized plants for scaffolding opens up the potential for a new branch of science that investigates the mimicry between plants and animals. Now, of course, because every living thing ultimately comes from the same basic building blocks and was exposed to the same set of general selection pressures as they evolved plants and animals have developed similar solutions to many of the problems of life. Um, And there's also obviously physical constraints as in constraints because of the laws of physics and things like that, that make certain solutions more um, possible than others. And so one of those is, it seems, how to transport much needed nutrients to various parts of the organism. So once the plant cells are removed, what is actually left is a cellulose framework. And so cellulose is totally um, biocompatible, so there's no problem there. And it's really, it's interesting if you look at the pictures, um, it leaves kind of a ghost leaf behind. Um, And then that allowed the team to seed the framework with human cells that line the blood vessels And then they were able to use fluids and microbeads, approximating the size of red blood cells, as basically a proof of concept for blood flow. Adapting abundant plants that farmers have been cultivating for thousands of years for use in tissue engineering could solve a host of problems limiting the field, notes corresponding Arthur author Glenn Gaudet, PhD professor of biomedical engineering at WPI. The lead author of the paper, Joshua Gerslack is a grad student in Godette's lab, and he was instrumental in developing the process for decellularizing the leaves. I had done decellularization work on human hearts before, and when I looked at the spinach leaf, its stem reminded me of an aorta. So I thought, let's perfuse right through the stem. We weren't sure if it would work, but it turns out to be pretty easy and replicable. It was working in many other plants. And so the team also sees the spinach slash heart cell uh, combination as just the first stop along the way of what might be a revolution in bioengineering. The team has so far removed the cells from spinach leaves, parsley, sweet wormwood, and peanut hairy roots. The spinach leaf might be better suited for a highly vascularized tissue, like cardiac tissue, whereas the cylindrical hollow structure of the stem of Impatiens capiensis, or jewelweed, might better suit an arterial graft. Conversely, the vascular columns of wood might be useful in bone engineering due to their relative strength and geometries. The authors wrote in the paper, Now, as you can imagine, one of the other great things about this is that using plants can uh, eventually be pretty cost-effective if they can refine um, the actual um, process, and obviously they're pretty safe. Putting cellulose into you is very safe. (laughs) There's no problems with potentials of um, artificial materials, and so the paper notes that by exploiting the benign chemistry of plant tissues scaffolds, we could address the many limitations and high costs of synthetic complex composite materials. Plants can be easily grown using good agricultural practices and under controlled environments by combining environmentally friendly plant tissue with perfusion-based decellularization we have shown that there can be a sustainable solution for prevascularized tissue engineering scaffolds so that pretty much sums it up <laughs> now of course as with any breakthrough in a lab it will take many years of research to perfect the project process and then It still would have to go through a bunch of hurdles as far as um, lab testing of actual human subjects and things like that before it could actually be used in medicine. So don't think that you're going to get a new uh, leaf shaped heart anytime soon, but hopefully um, it's definitely it is a really cool and hopeful avenue for future research. So that is very exciting. Okay, so the next thing I wanted to talk about is the cancer study that it's been very big today. I'm pretty sure I read about it yesterday um, to start, but um, there is a new study out that basically a lot of people are reporting in a way that is not actually um they're they're doing this sort of lazy reporting thing that, that makes me very unhappy. Um, so basically, the sort of headlines are that two thirds of cancers are caused by um, mistakes in cellular division. And so basically, the sort of implication there is that there's nothing you can do about whether or not you get cancer. And so I wanted to back that up and explain it a little bit better. Um, because that's definitely a line that a lot of people are leading with. And if you don't read further, that's not good. Because that is definitely not what the study says exactly. And so basically what the study is, is they looked at 17 types of cancer. And said they, they suggest that they are mostly caused by random mutations. And in fact, this study is actually a follow-up to a study performed by the same group in 2015, which looked at U.S. cancer rates. This time, they actually um, expanded the research to look at health records from 69 countries. And they basically claimed that the new data supports their original conclusions with some caveats. Now, one of the things that they really tried to emphasize themselves is that Technically, this is good news for some patients. Um, They have said it could provide comfort to the millions of patients who develop cancer but led near perfect lifestyles. This is particularly true for parents of children who have cancer, noted senior author Dr. Bert Vogelstein of John Hopkins University. And so basically, he suggested this would give parents peace of mind, that they did not pass on bad genes, or somehow expose their children to carcinogens. However, some researchers are not particularly convinced by their data. What they found was a close correlation between the rate of cellular division in different tissues and the rate of cancer people develop in those regions of the body. So for instance, because the cells of the large intestine divide frequently, there is a higher rate of cancer, around 5%, than that for the small intestine at 0.2% of cancer, because the cells in the small intestine rarely divide. And some researchers are wary of the group's actual conclusions um they were already wary of them back in 2015 because back then they really kind of almost implied the fact that there wasn't that much of a need to worry about environmental factors and um this time they're they're being a little more nuanced (laughs) which is good um but actually I just wanted to get back to that other um that example for a second because basically what the critics are saying is that sure you've shown that there are correlative differences between cancer rates based on cellular division but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the cellular division that is the only factor involved um And so, sure, any place in the body that has more cellular division has more chances to develop cancer because cancer cells are developed when there's cellular division. (laughs) And so it's a little bit uh, unclear whether or not you can extrapolate then that this was clearly the cause of the cancer. And one of the other things that... um, some of the other researchers have been saying is that, you know, cancer isn't caused by a single mutation. So a, combina- a combination of m- random mutations and environmental pressures can lead to the disease. And of course, cancer is not one thing. So they also found the diff- that different cancers have a different ratio with at least 60% of skin and lung cancer being down to environmental factors, while prostate, bone, brain, and lung cancers had only a 15% or less chance of being caused by environmental factors, according to their analysis. And so one of the reasons that people are a little bit wary about this uh, information is that they used, they basically relied on genetic analyses. Um, and so there was one database in England that they used that was had a lot of really robust data, but it was basically genetic data. And so they said, well, we could tell by looking at the genetics of the cancers, whether it was caused by, um, you know, mutations during cell division or environmental factors or hereditary or um, heredity, and sure, that's all well and good, but again, what their critics are saying is that you can have environmental factors that don't show up when you look at genetic data. So um, one critic (laughs) says, environmental exposure can influence cancer risks in many ways, And this is from Ross Prentice, a renowned cancer biostatician at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center in Seattle. And he told Stat News that it can affect whether cells repair cancer-causing mutations and whether the immune system destroys tumors before they actually cause disease, among other things that don't show up when just looking at genetic data. So the real takeaway here um, is do not (laughs) not that hopefully you were planning on but don't sign up now suddenly for a tanning booth session or buy that pack of cigarettes that you gave up um, because you were worried about lung cancer. Please do not do that. Um, Environmental factors absolutely do play a part in cancer. Even if we don't exactly agree on the amount of how much they are a factor. And again, one of the big other takeaways is that cancer is an overarching term for a variety of different diseases that affect the body and develop and grow in different ways. And so that's why I always say that if someone says they have a cure for cancer, run away because there is no such thing as a cure for cancer because cancer is not one thing. Something that works for lung cancer may not work for breast cancer, almost certainly won't work for breast cancer. Something that works for breast cancer won't work for prostate cancer. And so we have to be really careful about talking about cancer as a monolith and even they acknowledge that because they said you know things like lung and skin cancer are much more likely to be caused by environmental factors and that's just a fact (laughs) and so it definitely don't take this as a uh, license to go and do whatever you want okay And so now let us move on to a new uh, study from psychology. So the results of a recent study found that violent video games do not actually affect empathy. Now, this is a result that personally I didn't find particularly surprising. Previous studies of video games were largely designed to measure short-term responses. So trials were designed by having the subject play a game and then immediately testing the subject on their empathy and aggression. And of course, showing again, rather unsurprisingly, that with that, there was decreased empathy and increased violence. I'm sure you've seen at least one angry gamer video at some point um, where they're screaming or throwing their controller, but that's in the heat of the moment. So this new study actually used fMRI imaging to compare the neural response of a group of male regular video game players versus a control group those with no experience with violent video games and who did not regularly play games. The gaming group consisted of men who played first-person shooter games such as Call of Duty or Counter-Strike for at least two hours a day for the previous four years, but who did refrain for at least three hours before the study began. And so the study was conducted in Germany and published in Frontiers of Psychology by Dr. Gregor Seizick of the Hanover Medical School and his colleagues. And they found that there was no difference either in response to a psychological questionnaire or in fMRI-detected brain activation between the gamers and non-gamers. And so the researchers were actually surprised by this result, Um, they really thought that it was going to show that there actually was a difference. Um, But they did not. Um, And so what happened was that they looked at this as Sure, there's a short-term response, but the long-term response is very different, and so it doesn't actually affect people overall. And so what they said was, We hope that the study will encourage other research groups to focus their attention on the possible long-term effects of video games on human behavior. This study uses emotionally provocative images. The next step will be for us to analyze data collected under more valid stimulation, such as using video to provoke an emotional response. And of course, like I was saying, I know several people who play games on a regular basis, And so this didn't really actually surprise me, um, but it is definitely good to see some actual research challenging the notion that playing video games changes the ability of people to feel empathy and control their aggression, even if they do drop or even throw a controller every once in a while. Um, And of course, no discussion of video games and attitudes is complete, in my opinion, without talking about sexism. And here too, it actually turns out that there doesn't seem to be, at least when researchers look, a big correlation. So a 2015 study, also in Germany, of 824 gamers concluded that there was not a link between sexism and time spent playing video games. Despite the fact that there are few positive portrayals of women in video games, and despite the fact that women are often, women often complain of poor treatment, especially in multiplayer games, I suspect that this has more to do with the anonymity afforded generally by computer interactions rather than the games themselves. And so women are often abused in any kind of online forum, regardless of the subject. Um, Unfortunately, anonymity does tend to bring out the worst in a lot of people. And so a new study published in Frontiers of Psychology of a sample of French students actually found that religion was three times more likely to be associated with responding to a sexist question than time spent playing video games. Now, there are multiple issues with the study. It involves self-reporting, which is notoriously unreliable, um, and it also um, judged sexism with just a single question, (laughs) Um, but it does seem to support prior research. To gauge sexism, the researchers asked the students to rate from one to four whether they agreed or disagreed with the statement, a woman is made mainly for making and raising children. And so there actually was a rather large association between this belief and time spent playing video games. But crucially, this was a there was a small effect size which is very important in science to distinguish between those two things. Um, Effect size is definitely, at least in a lot of people's opinion, more important. Religiosity, on the other hand, had both a large association and effect size correlating with sexism. So, yeah, Um, even though it seems very intuitive to me that gaming... uh, definitely increases sexism, it doesn't seem yet that the uh, research bears that out, so I'm willing to concede to the research. Okay, we're going to take a break, and then we are going to be back and talk about the fact that researchers think they've found a new thing that the lungs do. So, hang on. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires, and I save lives.
1: Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Hi, my name's Leo, and I use he, him, his pronouns. Hi, my name's AJ, and I use they, them, theirs pronouns. Did you know that sex is your biology and gender is how you identify? You can't assume someone's gender. Based on their clothes. Based on their hair. Based on their voice. Who they hang out with. Who they're attracted to.
0: My gender isn't your business. Ask me my pronouns!
1: Brought to you by the PVPA Student Group for Gender, Sexuality, and Diversity. Creative Valley is a show where I, DJ Spence, get the
0: opportunity to talk to the fascinating creatives of the Pioneer Valley. From authors to performers, artists to game designers, bands and musicians, you'll find them all on Creative Valley. Sundays at noon on Valley Free Radio, 103.3 FM, Northampton, or online at valleyfreeradio.org.
1: classical music on valley free radio tune in to andy Musique wednesday mornings at 7 a.m for an hour of beautiful music to start your day hosted by lucy and larry
0: heart j-rock with dj sakura is on saturday mornings at 12 to 2 a.m on wxoj lp 103.3 fm in northampton and you can stream us on valleyfreeradio.org i heart j-rock will be playing rock music from japan uh j-rock j-pop and some vk uh if you like that stuff give my show a listen please and also follow me on twitter at dj sakura 666 thank you we are back. And so yeah, I mentioned before the break that um, it turns out that our lungs are way more interesting than we once thought. So if you've ever contemplated your lungs and thought they weren't doing enough for you, um, it turns out that probably they are and we just didn't know it. And so what the researchers have discovered is that in mice, um, though they suspect this will scale up to humans, the lungs are not only being used to oxygenate the blood, but they are also the nursery for most of the platelets that are produced in the mice's body. So, this finding definitely suggests a more sophisticated view of the lungs, that they're not just for respiration, but also a key partner in in formation of crucial aspects of the blood, says pulmonologist Mark R. Looney. So, it turns out that this isn't a wholly new phenomenon. It's been known for some time that the lungs produced a limited amount of platelets with platelets forming with platelet forming cells called megakaryocytes having previously been detected in the lungs. But researchers still believed that the majority of the production of all components of blood, red and white blood cells along with platelets which are instrumental in clotting, were produced in the body's bone marrow by a process called hematopoiesis. But now they think the majority of platelets may be produced in the lungs instead. Now, of course, you're probably thinking at this point, Why do we not know basic things about our bodies? Why do we keep hearing about new things being found? Well, it turns out that some of this stuff is really hard to observe, especially when it goes against perceived wisdom. Um, Nobody was really looking for blood production in the lungs. And so the researchers, whose work is reported in the journal Nature, actually discovered this by using a new technology called two-photon intravital imaging. And by the way, this actually also was used this week to sort of quote-unquote accidentally discover a new role for the cerebellum, which is one of the most studied regions of the brain. So again, we're still learning. And so initially, this set of researchers had been looking into the interaction between the immune system and circulating platelets in the blood. And so the process of intravital imaging actually involves the use of green fluorescent protein or GFP. Now, GFP is actually one of the most important tools in modern lab-based, especially animal studies um, and biology studies. It's a protein, originally derived from jellyfish and other bioluminescent creatures. And so what they do is they insert it into the genome, or the gene to make it into the genome of animals in certain parts of them so that it will fluoresce and they'll be able to track things. Um, And so they were using mice that had been genetically engineered to produce GFP in their platelets. And so the team was able to use the new imaging technique to visualize the behavior of individual cells within the vessels of a living mouse. And so this led them to discover a larger than expected group of platelets producing platelet-producing megakaryocytes in the lungs. When we discovered this massive population of megakaryocytes that appeared to be living in the lung, we realized we had to follow this up, says Emma LeFrancais, one of the team from the University of California, San Francisco. It turns out that the platelet factory in the lungs was pumping out more than 10 million platelets an hour, more than half of the mouse's total volume. Further investigation, using video microscopy, found just beyond the lungs, a previously unknown mass of megakaryocyte progenitor cells, which, as the name implies, are responsible for producing megakaryocytes, along with blood stem cells. And so it turns out that they probably start in the bone marrow, but for some reason, yet undiscovered, they then traveled to the lungs in order to set up shop. It's possible that the lung is an ideal bioreactor for platelet production because of the mechanical force of the blood, or perhaps of some molecular signaling we don't yet know about, noted Guadalupe Ortiz Muñoz. The team then conducted a series of tests to probe the extent of the interaction between the cells of the lungs and the bone marrow. So they first took a set of lungs from a mouse that did not have fluorescent cells and grafted them into a mouse with the gene. They soon found fluorescent cells beginning to populate the donor lungs, confirming that the cells are most likely created in the bone marrow, but then migrate to the lung tissue. They then took lungs from gfp enhanced mice and transplanted them into mice with low platelet counts they found that shortly after transplantation there was a large uptick in platelet production as the cells in the lungs activated to try to restore balance to the animal and in what i considered to be the most interesting test they then went a step further they transplanted gfp genes perfused lungs, which meant all of the cells in the lung had that GFP, into mice with bone marrow that lacked normal blood stem cells. And what they found was that the GFP cells were soon to be found in the bone marrow, and they were producing not only platelets, but also a variety of blood cells, including several types of immune cells. These observations alter existing paradigms regarding blood cell formation, lung biology and disease, and transplantation, said pulmonologist Guy A. Zimmerman, M.D., associate chair of the Department of Internal Medicine at the University of Utah School of Medicine and a peer reviewer of the paper, The findings have direct clinical relevance and provide a rich group of questions for future studies of platelet genesis and megakaryocyte function in lung inflammation and other inflammatory conditions, bleeding and thrombotic disorders and transplantation. And so one of the things that they talk about is that this could have implications for things like lung transplants um, in humans. So they will need to sort of look and see if that if there's something that they've been missing that's impacting um, the ability of people to accept lungs and things like that. Um, And also it adds to a growing body of evidence that stem cells in general are much more mobile than once believed. We're seeing more and more that the stem cells that produce the blood don't just live in one place but travel around through the bloodstream. Perhaps studying abroad in different organs is a normal part of stem cell education, notes Dr. Looney. And so, yeah, that is a very cool thing where basically we had no idea that this was going on. And so, um, again, GFP, uh, if you have never looked into some of the studies that have used it, it is... It is amazing um, the ability of researchers to insert the gene for producing GFP into different organisms has really, really revolutionized the ability of us of researchers to track you know the expression of a gene. So um, if you attach it to a, next to another gene and then you basically are able to see where that gene moves because the other cells that have it will fluoresce. And so it's pretty amazing. Um, And it does not hurt the animals in any way, shape or form. So, um, you know, some people have probably been a little bit wary about uh, quote unquote glow in the dark kittens and things like that, or mice, but it doesn't hurt the animals at all. And so it's definitely really helped revolutionize um, our ability to deal with and to study medicine. And so it definitely um, should not be underestimated. Okay, so now that we've talked about really awesome things uh, like finding new ways to grow heart cells and new things that our lungs are doing for us, let's talk about something slightly different, which is a little bit of overhyped technology associated with health. And so clearly I love science, technology, advances in modern medicine. I mean, that's what the show is about. Um, But one of the other things, like when I talked about the issue of um, when I talk about the issue of the uh, cancer article is that I don't like things being overhyped or explained badly. Um, And obviously it's something that I try and combat with this show. And one of the things that I think was extremely overhyped is the whole project of smartphone apps to help with healthcare goals. I'm also generally skeptical of the sort of fitness tracker uh, apps that are all the rage today or the actual physical trackers. Um, and of course, in a previous episode, I noted the real privacy concerns related to those trackers. Um, and of course, there's probably also a host of privacy issues that go along with these apps on your phone that are supposed to help with healthcare. But this isn't about that. This is actually um, about the fact that... Um, There have been different attempts to create a connected world of health information that have not been particularly successful as of yet. And so this is a study in last week's Nature Biotechnology, and it looked at the use of a particular asthma health app to engaging its success in helping researchers gather data about the disease. What they found was rather dismal results. Now, the lead authors, Joel Dudley and Eric Schatt of Icon of Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, actually reported a potential conflict of interest, as they should, because they have stock in the company, Life Map Solutions, Inc., which created the map. And yet, even with that potential for potentially having a uh, positive outlook rather than uh being objective they still found results that were dismal (laughs) as far as i'm concerned and of course they try to put an optimistic spin on the data which is that you know we've noticed that there are all these problems so we just need to learn how to solve these problems and then everything will be perfect hooray uh yeah unfortunately it's a rather high hill to climb to get to a place where that app could actually be useful for research and Um, By extension, a lot of these apps probably have pretty much the same issues. One of the main issues was actually, unsurprisingly again, user retention. How many times have you downloaded an app, used it faithfully for a week and then abandoned it? I know I have on many an occasion, faithfully played a game or did a thing and then completely abandoned it and haven't used it since and look at it guiltily occasionally when I sync my iPhone um, to my computer. So this particular app was designed with Apple's own research kit, not only registered low retention, but also selection bias, missing data, and data security issues. So the, this particular app was meant to help monitor and control the participants asthma related symptoms, as well as contribute to a database of information concerning statistical informations, information of the participants. And according to Ars Technica, the app took information from the user on a daily, weekly, and also less frequent milestone surveys. It also fed the user information about the disease and gave them reminders relevant to controlling their asthma. So, Apple actually made a big reveal of this app, and so it was downloaded initially by 40,608 six th- 683 users in the US. Now, Of those people, only 7,593 actually agreed to enroll in the study itself, but of course then the number of those who agreed, who actually participated, ended up at only 131 people who managed at least a week's worth of surveys and a six-month milestone survey that is a 1.7% retention rate. And that's only if the data set was meant to end at six months. And then there was the problem with the cohort that actually did persist. So compared to a cohort study conducted by the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the APPS cohort was younger, wealthier, more educated, and more male. Which means the data would be frankly useless in extrapolating onto a larger population. And not only were the demographics an issue, but the users also had a higher rate of asthma-related hospitalizations and emergency room visits when compared to the CDC cohort. And so this suggests that they were dealing with asthma that was more severe or less well controlled than the generalized cohort surveyed by the CDC, again making it hard to extrapolate any useful information from the data. And even from those who regularly used the app, data collection was spotty. Due to glitches, gender and or age data was only obtained from 1,398 initial participants, while only 545 partic- participants allowed the app to collect geolocation data, which would have helped with surveying environmental impacts on asthma frequency and severity, such as pollen, air quality, things like that. Now, there was a bit of positive feedback. Of those who filled out a milestone survey, the number of those who reported that their asthma was uncontrolled dropped from 42 to 24%. So perhaps the app worked well for aiding in the health side effects while failing rather spectacularly on the research side. Now one suggestion that the researchers had uh, seems like a possible solution, which is to combine a traditional type of clinical trial with an app. They also suggested that this would be best for research that can rely on passive data such as movement. So for now I think it's pretty much back to the drawing board and uh, for now we need to keep relying on old-fashioned trials until the bugs are worked out of the program. Okay, so finally tonight, I want to switch gears and talk about a new physics theory, um, because it's definitely one of those things that if you only read the headline, it's going to sound incredibly weird and insane. Um, But it actually does have some theoretical framework to it that is uh, not insane, I promise. So the new theory was published in the journal Physical Review Letters. And it suggests that there is a portal linking the standard model, which describes the particles that interact in the physical world, with the so-called dark forces of physics, such as dark energy and dark matter. Now the important takeaway here is that this isn't a portal like in a sci-fi movie or a time travel movie. This is a portal on the quantum level. So it's, you know, quantum sized. And so basically the problem is, as you may know, the standard model is great for interactions in the macro world, the world of you and me. but it really doesn't cut it when we try and extrapolate it to the entire universe and to things on a very small scale. So that's why we talk about uh, the standard model, and then we talk about how quantum physics is weird and nobody understands it. Um, And so the other thing is, of course, that there's clearly stuff out there that we know exists. We can see the effects of it, but we can't tell the materials that are causing it. So researchers from the Institute of Basic Science in South Korea have a new study suggesting that it may be that there's something called, or what they call, a dark axion portal responsible for connecting the world of the seen and unseen. So previously, researchers had suggested two other kinds of portals vector portals and axion portals, which correspond to two different theoretical particles, the axion and the dark photon. Now, axions are thought to be a very light particle, which kind of help resolve and fill in some of the gaps of the standard model. Um, Nothing to see here, a little bit of hand waving. Um, And the dark photon is, as advertised, a dark version of the photon we know, the particle that is responsible for visible light. So the current theory suggests that these particles may be linked by a kind of heavy quark that is, importantly, a dark, charged particle, allowing it to couple with a dark photon. The dark axion portal suggests the first meaningful connection between the two physics, which have been studied separately. It connects the dots, said lead researcher Lee Hiai-sung, This will allow reinterpretation of the previous data and potentially make a breakthrough in the axion and dark photon searches. And of course, while this is yet another unintuitive idea for the moment, the bonus of this theory is that it has real potential to be experimentally proven. Much of theoretical physics is plagued with theories that are very elaborate and complete, but lack any way of being proved. Whereas this one, the researchers are now actually going out and trying to figure out, uh, experimental setups that they can use to actually test whether or not this is real. So, hey, this might actually become something that's real, which is more than we can say for things like string theory. And with that, um... That is all the time we have. So do stay tuned for civil politics. And I will be back next week with more science news. Thank you for listening to Evidence-Based Radio.
1: Sure, humans can be a little weird at times. But take it from me, I'm a dog. And a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down or visit the shelterpatproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council.
0: I Heart J Rock with DJ Sakura is on so-